Let's pray, and then uh, we'll get to work. God, first of all, we just recognize that we, we need your help. We need your assistance, God, speaking to us, opening our eyes. Because, uh, Lord, uh, naturally, not only are we blind, but naturally we, we bring presuppositions to the text, God. We bring our own lenses by which we view your word. And a lot of times those lenses and those presuppositions that we have are just inaccurate. They're not complete. They're not proper. They're not sound. And so, God, we want to lay those things down, and we just ask that you would allow your word to speak to our hearts, God, that we would be changed, transformed, that it would do in us, for us, the work that you desire for it to do. So we just surrender our hearts to you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, what I'm going to do this morning is I want to kind of start by asking a question, and the question is going to lead into the larger, hopeful narrative of the bigger picture of the Bible, and the question is simply this, um, how does an invisible God make his ways known? How does an invisible God make himself known or seen or visible? That's the big question, and the answer to that, I think, is what we'll find throughout the entire Bible, is that God makes his ways known by the actions and the attitudes of those that are within his covenant community. That's how God actually does this. So again, the question, how does an invisible God make himself known or seen? The answer is that God does this by way of those who are in covenant community with him. I'll give you an example of how God has made this known. One of the most important examples of this is by way of what we typically would call the law or the Ten Commandments or the larger what we would call the, the Pentateuch um, which kind of housed all of the various laws and ordinances of God. But what you need to understand is that all of these laws and ordinances that you see throughout the Bible, some of the things that we read are kind of tedious. You know, we read all these like little laws and we wonder why are all these things there. And sometimes we lose sight of the bigger picture as to why they're there. But what you need to understand first and foremost that every single law that God had ever given to his people was always intended for the purpose of somehow putting on display his character. This becomes really exemplified in the passage I want to read here right now. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17. It goes like this, and actually earlier than this, um, God kind of asked the question, uh, what should the Lord require of you? Like, what does God really truly want from his people? And that's an important question. So God's basically kind of interested in saying, look, what's the, what's the highest aim, what's the highest goal that I want for you to do? So God has in his mind something that he wants for his people, the people of Israel, to put on display. In other words, there's a mission. God has a mission. There's a task. There's a goal, there's a purpose that God has for his people, Israel, and so he's going to tell us what that secret is or what that mission is. Verse 17 of Deuteronomy chapter 10 says this, the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and he takes no bribe. So first and foremost, God says, look, I want you to know who I am. I don't take bribes, I'm God, I'm the God of gods, I'm the Lord of lords, I'm the king of kings. So think of a king. God's like, I, I out-trump them. Think of a God, I'm bigger than them. Think of lords, I'm better than them. So I am the God of gods, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, and I take no bribe. Meaning there's no trace of injustice in me, in my character, whatsoever. No hint, no evidence of any partiality at all. God cannot be bribed. You cannot somehow make bargains with God. Uh, you can't somehow get God to do something that's deceptive. That's what he's trying to say. In verse 18, he says this, He ensures that there is justice for the orphan, the widow, and he loves 
the foreigner. Here's what God says. Giving them food and clothing. Okay, so here's the question. God says, look, I have a particular heart, especially for the orphan, for the widow, and the foreigner. You can also read outcast. Uh, These are people in that ancient culture, in that ancient civilization, that really had nobody to speak for them. Uh, They were outcasts. They had no fathers to speak up for them. They had no older brothers that were able to take up causes of justice for them. These are people that basically had no one to look out for them whatsoever. And God says, I want you, Israel, to look out for them. I want you, Israel, to feed them if you see them hungry. I want you, Israel, to give them clothing if you see them destitute or naked or having you know, nothing. I want you to be the ones to take care of them. So here's the interesting thing that God's trying to point out is that God's saying, I care about these people and I want to feed them. Now, the interesting thing is that God's not coming down with a robe in his hand saying, I'll feed them. Why? He's an invisible God. He's an invisible God. So how, again, how does an invisible God make himself known and his ways known? And the answer is by way of those within his covenant community. In particular, we see here Israel. God goes on to say, verse 19, therefore I want you to love the foreigner, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt, and you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, you shall cling to him, and by his name you shall make your oaths, and let your praise be to him, for he is your God, and he's done these mighty and great and mighty things. So God's basic point is this, and preposition for them is, proposition for them is this, is that I'm your God, and here's what I want you to do. I've done great, mighty, miraculous things for you, because once you, my people Israel, once you were foreigners in a foreign land, once you were the outcast, and it's like God's saying, he's pointing back to the moment when they were in Egypt. He says, don't you remember Israel? You guys used to be in Egypt. Remember what it was like to be the outcast? Remember what it was like to be the one that everybody made fun of? Remember what it was like when people used to look at you and shun you and not offer you drinks of cold water when you were thirsty? Remember what it was like? And God says, I showed you kindness. I took care of you. I loved you. I demonstrated kind affection to you. And so here's what God's whole point is, is that even though you, Israel, were once the foreigner, even though you were once those who felt kind of alone and outcast, God says, I took care of you by showing mercy and kindness to you. Then God says, therefore, because I've shown this mercy and kindness to you, I want you now to show this mercy and kindness to others. And then God summarizes with this by saying, really, this this reflects me. And this, this larger picture of what it means to reflect God goes into the larger concept of what God intended from the very beginning. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them and he described them as being his image bearers. No other creature, no other creation throughout the entire creation that we're familiar with that we know of can actually bears the stamp, bears the name as being an image bearer. Oftentimes, I think we think of image bearers as being people that share similar characteristics like God. I've heard it taught like this. I think I've even taught it this way before in the past where, you know, God's intelligent, we're intelligent, we image God. God's creative, human beings are creative, we image God. Um, you know, those types of things that we would associate as sort of part of social characters that we have, we look at that and we think, well, those image God, it's just like God, so therefore we're like God in these areas. I don't think it's less than that. But I think it's more than that. I think what God intends to be an image bearer of God is not less than what I just described, but way more than that. And here's what I mean. I think when God intended for mankind, Adam and Eve, to be image bearers of God, he intended for them to live in such a way that their lives would be like a mirror. 
Not a one-way mirror where you look into the mirror and you see yourself, but like a two-way mirror where you would set the mirror up in a way where you can look at it and then I can see people that are sitting right over there. I can look at this mirror and I can see you. And the idea is that that those that are sitting over there can look over here and see me. And that's the idea of imaging. It's the idea that the way that we live, the way that we live our lives, the way that we act, the way that our attitudes are towards other people, how we are forgiving towards other people, how we hold grudges maybe against other people, those are ways that don't image God because God doesn't do that. But when we choose to forgive, when we choose to love, when we choose to show kindness to the orphan or to the outcast or to the widow or to the foreigner or to the person that doesn't belong to the group, the club or the tribe, what we're actually doing is we're living out vocationally what it means to image God, what it means to reflect God. This was from the very beginning when God created Adam and Eve, but it continued on through the history of the people of Israel, that God intended for Israel to image God. How? By God giving to them his word, his revelation, the law. The law images, reflects, speaks forth about who God is, what God is like. And oftentimes, we look at the law, we can look at the law, and we can think, well, man, the law is so stern and harsh, and therefore God must be stern and harsh. And there are definitely stern and harsh judgments that are attached to the law. But what God really wants you to see is at the same time, the law also makes these unbelievable provisions for those who have nothing. So what God is actually trying to say is that, hey, you can focus on the stern, harsh elements of the law, the holiness aspects of the law, which God would definitely say, I am all of that. And, but at the same time, God would say, but also what I want you to see is in the law is this provision to help those people that are completely helpless. To come alongside and show kindness to people that, that most, most people would just write off or take advantage of. God says, I, those people that are the underdog, those people that have nothing to give, those people that have nothing to offer, those people that are the greatest annoyances in our lives or irritations in our lives, God says, my law is actually making a provision that by living these things out, you will actually be imaging me, demonstrating me. That make sense? That's the provision. This is what makes the story of Ruth come alive, is that in the story, you see Boaz actually doing just that. Because that's the story. It's a story of a man who's well-known throughout Israel. He's a rich dude. He's got a lot of money. He's probably a man of war. He, he knew how to fight. He's a well-known business owner. Uh, he's got a very successful business. And yet in his field, he notices that there happens to be this girl. He's never seen her before. He's never noticed her before. Her name is Ruth. And the narrator of the story constantly keeps coupling Ruth's name with her origin, just so that we don't forget, Ruth the Moabitess. Because the author wants us to understand that this is what is so astounding about the story, is that God uses a man like Boaz, who's just a regular dude in the culture, trying to live out God's word, trying to live under God's said, God's kindness, but he's also demonstrating that same said kindness that God showed to him to the foreigner. It's, it's, it's this amazing storyline of what God's doing. Now, we'll get to that more so in a moment. Now, I want to take a look very quickly at God's purpose of the law. Because we looked at the provisions, so God made these provisions for the law. Now, I want to try to really understand, what was the purpose for this, that God was trying to do this? Well, I think in short, take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 9. Read through this very quickly. He says this, 
I have taught you my statutes and my rules, God says. And the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all of these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Only take care to keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest you depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. So here's what God says. Look. There's two massive things that God says, I'm giving you my law so that it would accomplish. The first of which is um, God is clearly calling them to a mission. And the mission is this, that God says, I'm sending you into a land you didn't purchase for yourself, but I'm gifting it to you. God is saying, I'm giving you crops that you didn't harvest or you didn't grow. God is saying to the people of Israel, and when you go into this land, I want you to live in such a way as you follow my law, follow my word, that what will happen is it will kind of raise the eyebrow of other surrounding nations, those little tribes those little groups of people, those little pockets, those little small you know, groups of people living down the street, living underneath the mountain, uh, just down the road, when they see you guys operate and act in a way that's consistent with my law, meaning you demonstrate kindness and justice, those people that are oppressed, rather than taking uh, their oppression to another level and taking advantage of them, but instead you're actually helping those who are oppressed. When, and the, you know, the people that are foreigners, when you love the foreigners, God says when the other nations see that happening in you, they will look at you and think, wow, what God is there like the God of the people of Israel? There's no other God like that. And God says, that's what I want, is because I'm desperately concerned about their salvation. All of their nations, God would say, are, are under this curse because they've, rather than worship the true and living God, They've worshipped God's stuff. They've, they've worshipped God's goods. We've taken the gifts of God. And by the way, that's all of us here. If you're not Jewish, anybody? Anybody here, Jewish background? If that's the majority probably here are non-Jewish, meaning we're all Gentile, meaning that's all of us. We have all been people at some way, shape, or form in our life have somehow just simply taken God's goods and have walked away without ever thanking, recognizing, acknowledging, loving, worshiping, serving, giving ourselves to our creator, God. And God says, in turn, these people have actually become slaves to the things that they worship. They're bound. And God says, I want to set them free. They're in darkness. I want to bring them into light. They're slaves. I want to make them sons. It's always been God's heart from the very beginning. So first and foremost, Israel was being called by God through God's word to be on a mission, to demonstrate, to put on display, to be like a billboard. I mean, they're an advertising campaign for God. So that when they live out, but the problem with this advertising campaign is, it, is that it actually depends upon the consistency of a group of people living out Something that's very hard. And so oftentimes Israel failed. The second thing that the law was intended to be was not only for their mission. Secondly, it was also for their holiness. And God basically says, follow these things. Because if you don't follow these things, what will end up happening is you will start loving the things that are there in your heart. And your heart will have conflicted desires. You will start loving the things that I have made for you rather than loving me. You will love people. You will start to go out after 
you know, systems and circumstances and stuff. And rather than loving me, setting your heart and your affections upon me, you will set your heart and your affections upon other things. Relationships, jobs, goods, gadgets, television channels, all these things. God says you will somehow try to accumulate for yourself more and more stuff. And in the process, you'll lose me. And you'll lose your way. You'll be lost. And God says, so you've got to make certain that you take care of your heart. You've got to watch your heart. And you do that by obeying and abiding by my ways, by my word. So first and foremost, the law was given so that Israel would be good missionaries. Secondly, the law was given so that as their missionaries, on mission, following God, that they would be very aware of the dangers that are always constantly lurking in the shadows, constantly dragging them, constantly like tentacles of something sucking them and bringing them into the shadows. And that's where maybe some of you guys are at today. I mean, maybe some of you are here and you were brought up in the church, you knew Jesus, you had a relationship with Jesus at one point. Maybe you even have some sort of religious knowledge of God. But the idea of mission in your life, the idea of actually following God as a missionary is completely foreign to you. Or the idea of actually following God and abiding by his word, loving his word as a means of, of, of surrendering your heart to God and putting him on display, it's just so foreign for you because what's happened is that your heart has gone after lots of other things and those things have become possessors of you. They control you. You bend your knee in servitude to them. I mean, this happens even in the most simplistic ways, like, for example, affirmation. When we live and to us, when we try to make other people's opinions over us the most important driving factor force in our lives, you become a slave to that. You'll do anything you can to get that opinion to be raised for your good. And ultimately what happens is that anything that has power over you, that exercises power over you, becomes your master. It can be a job. It can be money. It can be someone's opinion of you. It can be the desire for affirmation. It becomes your master. The problem with all of those things becoming your masters is that all of them, to some degree, may make good gifts in your life, some of them, but all of them make very bad gods. They make promises they can never keep, and when you fail to live according to their standards, they mock you, and they show very little forgiveness. Unlike the God of Israel, He loves us and serves us. He literally serves us. Not as if we're kings, but as if he's a king that humbles himself before people that are undeserving. So, that being said, as we kind of get into this, I want to ask another question. Is it possible that in light of God's word as being a means to equip us for mission, as it also being a means for Israel of protecting them and keeping them holy while on that mission, is it possible to take something like God's word and begin to actually miss the missional element of the word and yet also at the same time completely miss God's whole point altogether? And the answer is absolutely, because this is exactly what happened with Israel. This is one of the reasons why Jesus had such great contention with the religious leaders. Because here you have the religious leaders that are saying, look, memorize the Torah, follow God, do all these things and these rites and rules and regulations and standards that we will set out for you. But at the end of the day, they were never touching at all the heart of God. In fact, they were missing the heart of God by sticking to their rights and rules and laws and uh, just 
standards, and they were missing the heart of God every single time. So this is something really important for us to even kind of consider to think about, because it's very possible, for example, that people of Israel, you can take God's word and use it in a way that actually brings people into bondage. It doesn't set them free. I mean, I can sit here and preach a sermon to you for an hour telling you all the things you should be doing for God, and I can make you feel so guilty right now because all of you failed. You know, all I've done is I've manipulated you. I've taken God's word, I've turned it into a noose, thrown it around your neck, thrown it over the rafter, pulled it a little bit, made a little tension, that's where you're at. That's what a lot of preaching is. It's using God's word to do nothing but to manipulate other people's conscience to make them feel guilty before God. When Jesus says, God's word is given so that you'd be set free. I've come to give you life. I've come to take you out from underneath the weight of heavy bondage that the religious leaders are trying to keep constantly thrown over you. Is it also possible to take God's word, to use it in a way to say, we are now this exclusive community. We do things right. Here's our little group, we read our Bibles a certain way, we pray a certain way, we witness a certain way, everybody else is slightly wrong, nobody is as good as us, nobody can ever go beyond our little group, we are this exclusive, tiny, little, cult-like group. You know what happens? You've completely missed the mission mind of God. Well, what about holiness, often as people say? Right, God wants us to be holy, but what's the purpose of holiness? purpose of holiness is so that we wouldn't get ourselves caught back into some sort of trap so that when we're on the mission, we can continue to stay focused on proclaiming the greatness of God. This is exactly the big contention that Jesus had with the religious leaders. It got to such a ridiculous point that Jesus goes in and has dinner with a prostitute and all the religious leaders freak out because they're like, are you kidding? You claim to be a good religious leader and you're hanging out with a prostitute. That's not right. And Jesus is like, look, but the prostitute needs me. Prostitute's trapped. Needs life. You know what Jesus was doing? He's saying the prostitute is on my path of my mission. And I want to save her. She needs to be set free. So these guys were actually an exclusive group of people that wouldn't go beyond mission because they were actually abusing God's word rather than using it in the intended way in which it was intended, meant to be. To set people free so that they would be good missionaries, proclaiming, living out, demonstrating God's goodness to an entire world that desperately needed him. So with that being said, what I want to jump into now is we begin to see throughout the passages here ways in which God has made himself known and ways in which God has been visibly seen throughout the text here. And again, asking the same question that we started with. How does an invisible God become visible? to a disbelieving, hurting, broken world? And again, the answer is by God's covenant people, his covenant community, faithful covenant community demonstrating God. This is what's so beautiful about the book of Ruth is we see elements of this faithfulness in, in the life of Boaz where he lives us out. So the first thing that we see uh, in ways in which this invisible God has been seen is first and foremost in verse 14, by a meal of bread and wine. This is amazing because what happens kind of gets you up to speed. This girl, Ruth, uh, who is, like I mentioned, a Moabitess, means that she was a foreigner. She wasn't part of the actual group of the people of Israel. She basically wakes up in the morning at the beginning of chapter two. She realizes, remember that I told you this from the very beginning, 
that there's two major problems throughout the book of Ruth, and they're surrounding food and family, right? So you've got to take care of the issue of food. Where are they going to get food? How are they going to survive? How are they going to eat? Well, God surprisingly demonstrates grace because Ruth is a hard worker. She gets up in the morning, even though she may be struggling with depression, because remember, she lost her husband. And secondly, she's never had any babies. She's kind of been in a pretty bad place. But her mother-in-law, Naomi, is even worse off because she's super depressed. She probably doesn't even want to get out of bed. But Ruth knows we got to eat. So she ends up getting herself out in the morning to go find a way to go eat. Now, back in those days, you can just go to Vons and, you know, buy stuff. You had to actually go work in a field, and that's exactly what Ruth did. She goes, works hard in the field, gets all sweaty, dirty, nasty, gross. But that's the type of person that Ruth was because she was faithfully committed to her mother-in-law. She loved her mother-in-law. She worked very hard for that. So we see that it just so happens to be that the field that she shows up to is owned by a guy by the name of Boaz, which we'll look at in a moment. So in the storyline, we see in about verse, uh, probably around verse 10 or so, Boaz comes to her and points out a little bit even before that. He says, like, I'm going to give you exclusive rights. You can glean in this field. This is yours. The rest of the day, don't go anyplace else. Just stay right here, um, and we'll make certain that you have all the provision that you need. So the very first problem of food is actually being solved. God is demonstrating his hand of kindness. God's hand doesn't come from the sky with a big tray of Costco goods. That's not how God worked. God's hand came out of the very natural, just consistent love, kindness, display of hesed that we looked at last week through a guy by the name of Boaz. And a very hardworking woman by the name of Ruth. That's how God's hand provided for him. So what we see as she faithfully goes there, um, sometime during the workday, obviously they get hungry, and Boaz says, I'm going to eat, and here's what Boaz does. He calls Ruth into the dinner. It's amazing that Ruth is actually brought into, she's this foreigner, she has nothing to do with, with none of the people of Israel, she's totally unfamiliar with the laws of Israel, but She's, she, she's found favor in the eyes of Boaz for some reason. Now, again, this is where we love, especially in our, you know, westernized, close to Hollywood type, romanticized pictures of this. We love to envision there's like this budding romance going on right here. That Boaz, maybe he's like, you know, 35 years old, chiseled jaw, abs, super strong, gets out of his like Escalade at lunchtime. He's got his Frappuccino is cruising around. He's like saying hi to all of his work. He's like, what's up? Praise God. They're all like, praise God, back to you. And he's like, who's that hottie out there in the field? Like that is, that, that is not what happened, all right? All right? I, I know we, we desperately want that to be the storyline. I, I don't think it is a storyline. I think it cheapens it. I think what is happening is Boaz is, is, a, is a man of God. He loves God. He absolutely loves God. And, and at some point, obviously by the end of the story, because we know the end of the story, Ruth and Boaz end up getting married. So something happens at some point. But, but again, just try to get your mind away from that sort of romanticized vision or picture of Ruth and see Boaz as this man of sterling character who loves God, who serves God, who's honest with God, who diligently wants to put on display the God of Israel. And what catches his eye about Ruth Here's this young foreigner who's out working very diligently in spite of the fact that she lost her husband, she can't have children, and she's a foreigner, and she's a female. She's working very diligently to somehow earn some sort of food for her mother-in-law who's stuck in bed, depressed. 
And Boaz is like, man, that's amazing. What an amazing woman. I want to help this woman. So he brings her to the table and they have dinner. And he has a dinner of bread and wine. And while he has his dinner of bread and wine, what you see here is that he actually serves Ruth. It's amazing that this, this guy of sterling character, he's just a man of God. He loves God. He's serving Ruth. He's going out of his way to demonstrate. He's not taking advantage of her. He's not you know, looking for opportunities where he can take things from her that don't belong to him. Guys, let me just say this as, a, as just kind of a side note. If you're a guy and you're one day hoping someday to find a good girl like Ruth, you need to be a guy like Boaz. You gotta be. Because the bottom line is that if you're not a guy like Boaz, chances are if you find a girl like Ruth, who's also trusting God, loving God, are very slim. Very slim. Like you really have to think of it this way, that there needs to be an element of character in your life that loves God, honors God, serves God, and at the same time honors and serves someone like Ruth. He's not some hot shot, shows up on the scene, demands to be served with his little posse of people following behind him. He's a humble servant, even though he's a mighty man of valor, even though he has all sorts of means, even though he has a fort, you know, an escalade, even though he's here, he's got everything you can imagine that everybody would want in our culture. And yet he humbly passes the bread and the wine to Ruth and serves her. To me, it's, it's this amazing picture that we see, you know, several hundred years later in the life of Jesus, where Jesus, this King of kings, Lord of lords, God of all creation, comes into this earth, has a dinner, has a meal with his disciples just before he dies. He breaks bread, gives wine, distributes them to his disciples, and after dinner, gets down on his hands and knees and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. It's the same type of element here. Absolutely beautiful picture. Boaz is this amazing guy. Jesus is our better Boaz. Just this amazing picture. The second thing we see here is not only was this meal of bread and wine, but we also see this generous provision that's going on here. In verse 14, it says this. It says, at mealtime, Boaz came to her uh, to take the bread, to dip the morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her the roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And then when she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out from the bundles for her to leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up, and she went to her city. Now, picture is this, is that basically right after dinner, she's got so much to eat, she's totally full, it's kind of the first indication of any type of a doggy bag in the entire Bible, but there you have it, she's got enough left over, he's like packs it up into a bag so she can take it home later on that day. So right after she's done eating this unbelievable meal, she goes back out into the field, and the next process typically after gleaning is that you got to go kind of thresh it, so you got to separate wheat from the chaff. Again, it's a long, arduous process. So here's, you know, Ruth, completely sweaty, nasty, gross, stinky. She's worked hard all day long, and the amount of grain that she beats out is, is an ephah. And all of you are like, no way, an ephah. Like, you have no idea what that even is, right? Right? Okay, and most people don't, but 
not even scholars, they, they debate over this stuff. And so most scholars believe that an ephah is probably somewhere around between 30 to 50 pounds of grain. Okay, so this is equivalent to Ruth saying, I need to go work, I need to go find some place, I'm going to start in the dumpsters behind Costco and see if they throw away any fruit. I'm just going to go dumpster diving, see what I can find. Anything I can find, bread, anything left over, croissants that have been maybe, you know, day old, three day old, I'll just, I'll eat it. I'll find whatever I can. And then the owner of Costco comes walking up, he's like, what are you doing back here? You know what? I'll tell you what, I, I'll, I'll let you come into the factory, come into the back where they're making all the bread, all the stuff. You can take anything you want. Just, it's all yours. So she comes home from a long day of work. You know, not with just like a couple handfuls of grain. She comes home with like boxes and boxes and boxes of Costco goods, like cookies and chips and croissants and like muffins and bacon and and avocados, and like just everything you can imagine. She's just like juggling this stuff, coming home, because it's so heavy. It's 30 pounds. Again, again I, I just look at this. I'm like amazed, because not only she worked all day, she's sweaty, doesn't smell too good. She comes home very late, and on top of that, she carries a 30-pound bag of groceries home. It's amazing. Like, this is Ruth. Why? All for her mother-in-law. She loves her mother-in-law. And so this unbelievable provision, we see God's hand miraculously taking care of, of Ruth. The third thing that we see is uh, by God providing this redeemer. In about verse 19, it says this. I'll pick it up in verse 18. And she took it up and she went into the city and her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her the food that she had left over after being satisfied. So you got to think of it this way. Um, we, we already know from little hints throughout the text that gleaning is very dangerous. Um, even Boaz recognizes how dangerous gleaning is because he actually makes his provision. He says, look, when you go out in the field, I'll, I'll make certain that none of my men um, take advantage of you at all. And gleaning was dangerous, especially for a woman, but especially for a foreign woman. Because a foreign woman had no place in the life of Israel. So a foreign woman could be attacked, molested, raped perhaps even killed, and no one would even bat an eyelash or even care. But here's what Boaz says. He says, you're a foreigner. It's very dangerous for you. Be careful. I'll make certain that I tell all my men that if anybody lays a finger on you, that they'll have to deal with me, the bow, all right? They don't want to mess with the bow. I'll take care of them. And so Boaz makes this amazing provision. So again, think about it this way. Here's Naomi. She starts the day out. She's at, she has absolutely no idea what's in store for Ruth that day. She knows, if anything, she's sending... Ruth out into a very dangerous, male-dominated, ferocious world. She has absolutely no way of getting in contact with her. She can't text her, can't call her, email, can't show up. There's no way for her to have any way of knowing how Ruth's day has been going. So you imagine, I would imagine at least, here's Naomi all day long, stressed out, freaked out, worried. Will Ruth come home? If she doesn't come home, will I not only lose food, but will I also lose my daughter-in-law? Will I be even more full of uh, sorrow at the end of this day? She has absolutely no idea. But then here comes Ruth coming home, and she's got like Costco following behind her. She's like, where did you go? I can't believe this. Where did you go? She's like astounded by this. In verse 19 it says, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? 
And where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law where she had worked and with whom she had worked. And the man's name, whom I had worked today, his name is Boaz. This is amazing. Like, Like in the moment Naomi hears his name Boaz, you can just, I would imagine, hear a pin drop. Like the sense of shock. Like, are you, are you kidding? Because the name Boaz actually takes us back to the very first verse of chapter 2 where the narrator of the story uh, lets us in on a secret that nobody else knows up until this point. That just so happens to be that the narrator whispers in her ear and says, listen, Boaz is a very important figure. Uh, he is somebody that is a relative of Naomi, which actually puts him into the running, puts him into a very capable position of redeeming the whole family. And I'll get more into what redemption of the whole family looks like next week. I'm not going to touch on that today. Uh, we'll be here for three hours otherwise. Um, so the point of the matter is, is what happens is that when she hears the name Boaz, she's absolutely blown away because here's what she says. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Naomi also said, the man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. What's amazing here is that Naomi immediately, not only does she finally have a sense of hope and relief, because he's got food. Remember the number one problem, food. Number two problem is family. And here now, Naomi, you can imagine her wheels of her mind are beginning to spin. Not only did God take care of our food, but God may also be setting us up for one of the most profound movements of family we could ever even imagine. The day started out where Naomi was crushed. The day before, Naomi says, don't call me sweetheart. Don't call me sweetie pie. Call me bitter because that's who I am. God has taken away everything from me. God used to love me. I used to have some confidence that God cared for me. Today, I look at God and I just question, does God even love me? I know he loves Israel. I know he takes care of Israel. He has a proven track record of that. But the track record in God of God in my life is one such that I think God has actually become my enemy. But we, we said this all along. That is it possible that behind the most profound suffering that Naomi is experiencing or that you may be experiencing, that behind all of that, underneath all of that, that God actually may be plotting together for the most profound good work of your life? just like he was plotting for the most profound work of Naomi's life. That's the beauty of this story. And we begin to catch glimpses of that, glimpses of hope in Naomi's voice at the end of the story where food problem becomes a solution to solve the issue and the potential of a family member somehow coming back into the life and somehow bringing revitalization to that family name once again. This is why Naomi says, Blessed be Boaz, who has shown kindness to the living, i.e., the widow, and the dead. Malon, Kilion, and Elimelech. That somehow, somehow God is moving, God is working, God is plotting, God is taking all of these what would appear disjointed, disconnected situations and scenarios and God's beginning to connect dots that you would have never dreamed of that God was capable or able of connecting. And that's exactly what God was doing. Maybe that's what God is doing in your lives. For some of you, you question, you wonder, where's God? Where is his love? Where is his kindness to me? 
maybe, maybe circumstances have come about in your life, have washed over you. We have not had any clue as to why they've happened that way. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's your house or a relationship, family member, somebody you cared for or loved. Something has just left you broken. Financial instabilities. Whatever the circumstances may be, our greatest tendency to question God's kindness in our life always comes connected to our suffering. And that's what happened with Naomi. That's probably what's happening with you guys as well, perhaps, if that's you in that situation. But the story of Ruth wants to connect for us this reality that God is actually still at work. God is actually still doing something, even though, like I said, it seems as if God is silent. It seems as if God has forsaken. It seems as if God has stopped speaking. He's still moving, still working, and God's demonstrating, this invisible God is demonstrating his power, his greatness, by way of not only the meal of bread and wine, not only by this generous provision, but also by providing a redeemer. I want to wrap it up with this thought, because at the end of the day, we look at the story of Ruth and Boaz, and we just think it's an amazing story. It's great. It's great to see a guy like Boaz, a sterling character, he's a powerful, mighty man of God. You know, he loves to just show kindness to people that have nothing. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, th- I think, you know what, I'll be straight up honest. I'm a cynic, all right? I'm just as cynical as you are. I look at this life. I look at people. I don't have any confidence in people. People let me down. People let you down. People let all of us down. And that, that creates cynics out of us, all right? So we can read a story like Boaz and be like, oh, that's awesome. But then reality hits us and we're like, yeah, but it just doesn't happen that way. Wouldn't it be awesome if it really happened that way? And wouldn't it be awesome if somebody actually lived like that and loved people like that and cared for people like that, even though they weren't necessarily motivated by any other ulterior motives, just purely kindness? We look at that. And in reality, like I said from the very beginning, part of God's overall mission is that I want to try to put Boaz, not just simply in light of reading the story of Ruth, but I want to put Boaz, his life, in the context of the story of Israel. Because that's where Boaz belongs. He's in the context of Israel. Israel is in the context of this narrative of God. That God called upon Israel to be image bearers. To reflect. To be like a light that demonstrates God's beauty in a very dark world. And Israel was failing. We know that because the story of the book of Ruth starts out and says, During the time of the judges. And that's just this like little phrase that takes us back to the very last book of the, you know, very last verse in the book of Judges that says this, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. You know what that means? Everybody was living just like you and I typically live. We just care about ourselves. It's a miserable place to be. Can you imagine living in that? If you're married, if you're married to that person who only thinks about himself, only cares about himself, that's a miserable marriage, isn't it? I mean, I mean if, if you have relationship with somebody, and it's just single-sided, one-sided, you keep giving out, keep pouring out, and they just keep absorbing like a sponge, keep taking, and they never give out. Man, that's, that's a horrible place to be. Or people use you. They're like, look, you're a gifted, talented musician. I want to use your gifts. I don't care about you, or your heart, or your personality, or how you feel. I just want to use you. I mean, if, that, if people like were more front about their motivations, you know, we would have more of a greater opportunity of saying, no thanks, I don't think I want that. All right? 
Like, like that's the world we live in, but we are not so honest with our intentions, are we? But the bottom line is, is that this was God's intention from the very beginning, that we, as image bearers of God, would reflect God's heart. Ultimately, God called Israel to be this nation to reflect God's heart so that the world, that's rest of us, Gentiles, who are walking in darkness, would see God's great light and respond in love and serve God, follow God, that we would repent from our sin, that we would repent from our ways and turn from the false gods and false deities that we serve and the things that we love and we serve with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, and might that are not God, that actually leave us to emptiness, greater emptiness, that we would leave those things behind and follow the true and living God who loves us. But what happened was Israel failed in its vocation. Do you know that? That's what happened. Israel failed in its vocation. It didn't image God. It didn't properly reflect God. It didn't demonstrate God to the world. Rather than being this nation that demonstrated kindness and affection and love for one another and forgiveness and settling debts quickly and making sure that there was any type of conflict, they would somehow be worked out in a very systematic way that would bring about justice and equity and that people that were like weak in the culture and society like widows or orphans or foreigners, that they would be welcomed in and loved. But that's not what happened with Israel. Israel became a nation that was very exclusive, that became arrogant and prideful, and they worshiped false gods. And as a result of that, Israel's failure to live according to God's standards, reflecting God out to this world that's in darkness, now finds himself under the judgment of God. Under the judgment of God. But part of God's story, part of this larger narrative in which Boaz finds himself in Israel's narrative, Israel finds herself in God's story, part of the bigger narrative is that God did not give up on Israel. God did not give up on Boaz. God did not give up on pagan, false God worshipers like you and I. He didn't give up on us. So we ask the question again, how does an invisible God make himself known to a world that's broken? And the answer is, by way of his covenant people. And the greatest reflection of this, greatest demonstration of this, is seen through Jesus. Jesus enters into the very storyline that he created. Do you ever wonder why Jesus came as a Jew? Do you ever wonder when Jesus first started his ministry? Because again, we can read our Bibles, and when we don't read our Bibles in the context of the narrative, the story, a lot of things don't really make a lot of sense to us. We're like, ah, oh, that's weird. Twelve apostles, why? I'll tell you why. Jesus chose 12. Not 14, not 82, 12. Because there are 12 tribes of Israel. You know what Jesus was doing? He was sending a very clear message that he would be for Israel what Israel failed to be for God. And not only would he be for Israel what Israel failed to be for God, Jesus himself would also do for Israel Meaning, take upon himself the judgment that was rightfully to be brought upon the head of the Israelis, the Jewish nation. That Jesus would actually take upon himself the judgment that was incurred by Israel upon himself. Bearing their sins. Bearing the weight of their evil. Bearing the weight of their wickedness and their obstinacy and their lack of reflecting God and bearing his image. Jesus not only did for Israel what Israel failed to do, 
be and do, but God, Jesus also did by taking upon himself the sins of Israel and bearing their judgment. And the third day rose again. This is one of the reasons why the New Testament writer says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead of a new creation. So what does Jesus do? He comes into the world in the image of God, lives the life that Israel should have lived. Why did Jesus spend 40 days in the wilderness? Israel spent 40 days, 40 years in the wilderness. Why did Jesus get baptized in the Jordan? Israel came into, Israel came into the land of Canaan through the Jordan. Jesus was reenacting everything Israel failed to do or should have done or did. Jesus was reenacting Israel. Jesus was the fulfillment of what Israel should have done. But he comes in this world and he dies, bears upon himself the judgment that Israel and the rest of the world incurred, rises again, conquering death as a newborn, new creation, I should say, of all things new. Jesus creates unto himself a brand new family, a family of people that are reborn in his image. For what purpose? So we can just memorize scriptures? So that we can create new rules, new laws, so that we can be a new group of exclusive people that we can shame, mock, make fun of, look at people that aren't living the way that we live and doing things that we aren't doing? No. So that we can rightly image God. So that we can rightly serve God by imaging our creator God. That's what God calls us to. So what makes the story of Ruth so beautiful is Boaz was just a shining light, just one of who knows how many. But he's a shining light that points us forward to the greatest, most brilliant shining light, Jesus, who is going to be the firstborn of a brand new creation. That means today, if you are a Christian, you also have not only been brought into a family, but you've also been given a vocation. And the vocation that has been given to you is that you would image God you would reflect God, that you would recognize God has placed you in a position in this life to image him. So if you own a business, you image God by the way that you treat your employees. If you're a dad, you image God to your children by the way that you love, shepherd, serve, lay your life down for your children, humble yourself before your children. If you're a husband, you do the same thing to your wife. If you're a guy looking for a girl, you do what Boaz did. You serve and you love and you care not because of duty, but because of great delight. This is what your God did for you. So the invisible God was made seen through Jesus. This is why John chapter 1, verse 14 says this. And the word became flesh. God became a man. Jesus was in relationship with the Father and the Son, and the Spirit. That's about as community as it gets. Jesus puts on display perfectly everything that God's all about. And Jesus calls a family of people to follow him who have their hearts and their lives and their sins washed and purged and cleansed. Not so that as we follow him, we follow him by just going to church and doing churchy things and do, saying churchy things and learning a new type of you know, language that's churchy. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about living, putting on display the glorious God that rescued us. This is why it's good news. You didn't deserve this. You were the outcast. That was you. 
You were the Moabitess. You were the person that was outside of the relationship of God. Our sins, the Bible tells us, has separated us from God. Yet God took upon himself our judgment and our sins and brought us back to himself. That's the beauty of the cross. So we're going to worship. We're going to respond. It's why we love Jesus. This is why the good news is good news. It's because this is what God has done for you. Christianity is not about all these lists of rules and regulations and attitudes and actions and things that you've got to now somehow do for God. It's about recognizing that what God has done for you over and over and over again, but preeminently in one moment in history on the cross, that's what God did for you. That's how much he loves you. I'm going to pray, and we're going to have an opportunity to respond to God. We're going to sing. We'll partake of communion together. We partake of communion because it reminds us of the meal that Jesus had just before he died, that Jesus took bread, took wine, gave it to his disciples, and said, drink and eat, and every time you do, remember me. We drink the bread, or <laughs> we eat the bread, drink the cup, as a way of us being reminded of all the things that Jesus did for us, but in doing so, we recognize of the implications, the implications that that has upon us. That if God has richly accepted you and I, and God has forgiven us, and God calls us to a vocation to reflect and image him, that means we've got to search our hearts. There's sin that we're holding on to. There's things that we're looking to, things that are not of God. Grudges that we hold against people. Bitterness that we harbor in our heart. That's not of God. It becomes an opportunity to repent, as the Bible would say. To cast those things before God. And, and be washed and cleansed by Jesus. I'm going to pray. And then we'll sing. God, right now we just uh, confess before you our desperate need of you. God, we need you. I just pray right now, God, that you would just wash over this room here right now and just allow us to know that your presence is here God you're not far, you're here God that you desire to just move in people's lives and bring transformation to them God for some people that, that begins just by them knowing that you love them, that you care for them for some it means God you just touching them in a special way and causing them to know that you're not angry that you love them, the cross is demonstrated that the penalty, our sin, has been taken care of. We don't, we don't need to cling to that anymore, but we can cling to the cross that you've given to us. God, confessing sin becomes a thing that we want to do because we don't want to be bound again. We don't want to be trapped. So we want to relinquish sin. We want to relinquish religious, ideological ideas that bind us. We want to relinquish false interpretations and notions of the Bible that actually make us slaves and not who are free. God, we want to confess attitudes that are actually more akin to exclusivity, and tribalism, some sort of idea of arrogance rather than an open-hearted willingness to embrace even sinners, great sinners, just like us. So God, we just bring before you our hearts. We ask you to wash us and cleanse us as we confess sin to you. We're going to sing worship, we're going to confess sin. If you're here, there are things in your heart at all maybe that you need to confess before God. My encouragement to you would be just take 
advantage of the opportunity that God is here and he wants to wash you, wants to cleanse you, wants to make himself known to you. And the most profound ways that that can be done is you partake of the communion. You realize that God is here. God loves you. He's a body of Christ here. If there are things that are going on in your life, you need prayer for anything. Maybe afterwards when we're done, there are things that you want to just confess to someone and pray with them. So the body of Christ is here. My encouragement to you before maybe just running out and bailing people around you they, maybe God wants you to just be sensitive to around that where you're sitting by maybe someone needs prayer take an opportunity to get to know some people pray for them be to them what the invisible God wants you to be to them the manifestation of his love and his grace so let's sing let's worship let's confess sin let's partake of communion together